The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, who says big cities are over? Motorcycle Club member, oh, and billionaire real estate mogul Sam Zell says the exodus to suburban pandemic retreats is temporary. Cities will rise again. Urbanization, you know, creates both challenges and opportunities, isn't about to change. Welcome, class of 2024, to your bedrooms. Georgetown University's president on a very unorthodox fall semester. We estimated nearly half of the students we were bringing to campus, that being quarantined for those first two weeks, we made a decision that we would go fully virtual at the start of this year. Those stories, plus more details about Palantir's hotly anticipated Wall Street debut as the company's S1 is released. It's almost a sort of a right-leaning version of wokeness. And the Trump case for re-election in prime time. He's what is best for our country. It's Wednesday, August 26, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Joe Kernan. And Melissa Lee is with us today. Becky's off. Melissa, welcome to, uh, yeah, welcome to the club this morning. It's great to be here. It's always great to start the morning with you guys. She's like a regular. I say that without a hint of sarcasm. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's, that's a She's first. looking at her watch. She's looking that's at her watch. Yeah. She's like, it's 6 o'clock in the morning. What am I doing here? She's a regular. I, I mean, she's, you're, you're happy to be. I, I don't know. I, I, Sometimes you got to really tell us what, because uh, you like it. You, you know, you may feign a little bit of, oh, boy, it's early and everything. But uh, you're ready to play, and you show. And you show them. And, uh, Always. It's, it's you know, important. you got to bring it each time. You never know. You, you do. No I in team. No I in team, and you're here, and we're glad <laughs> to have you. There's only a me. There's only, there's a, only me. a me. I always say that. It's an M, really. <laughs> I guess it's a me. Uh, anyway. All right. First up, new details on one of the most anticipated public debuts of the last few years. Data analytics company Palantir Technologies has released its prospectus to debut on the public markets. In the filing, Palantir revealed that it plans to list on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker PLTR and will pursue a direct listing rather than a traditional IPO. The same unconventional route has been taken by Slack in 2019 and Spotify in 2018. The company said it lost about $580 million last year, despite a 25% increase in revenue from the prior year. Palantir was founded in 2003 by a group of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, including CEO Alex Karp and Peter Thiel. Thiel became wealthy as a founder of PayPal and an early investor in Facebook. And just in case you didn't know, I did not until today, Palantir, the company, was named after a magical orb in the Lord of the Rings that lets you travel across vast distances. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin with more. In the filing, CEO Alex Karp said, quote, our company was founded in Silicon Valley and by the way, now it goes to take on a shot at Silicon Valley. But uh, we seem to share fewer and fewer of the technology of technology sectors, values and commitments from the start. We have repeatedly turned down opportunities to sell, collect or mine data. Other technology companies, including some of the largest in the world, have built their entire businesses on doing just that. Uh, CARP recently announced plans to move its headquarters from Palo Alto to Denver, in part because of 
this value issue he's talked about. Palantir also clear on its stance on China. He says, we do not work with the Chinese Communist Party and have chosen not to host our platforms in China, which may limit our growth prospects. The company proposed three classes of stock, Class A, Class B, and Class F, which will be held by a voting trust established by its founders, including Peter Thiel, with just below 50% of the total voting power for that stock. That's similar to the voting structure of other tech giants, including Facebook and Google. So uh, if you're concerned about the, the power structure, uh, that, is, that is something they do share in common uh, with, with the rest of the Valley. But Alex Karp has been on our program several times now, uh, has been critical of Silicon Valley uh, over the years. But most interestingly, given that it's a data-driven company itself, uh, insofar as it's collecting data from all over the world on behalf of corporations. And in large part, this was a company that was built on the back, or I shouldn't say on the back, but in the aftermath of 9-11 to help the U.S. government uh, track down terrorists uh, and doing so through data. It's an interesting position that he's now taken uh, related to how the commercial, what he would describe as, I think, the commercial um, Internet giants, how they use data relative to the way it's kind of a new version of, of woke, uh, what, what, what he's saying. He's like, uh, it's almost a sort of a right-leaning version of wokeness. I, I mean, you could imagine that the, the truly woke people in Silicon Valley look down on this company because all the work it does with the CIA, and we know those are a bunch of yep. nasty, horrible people and defense contractors and all these people in the, in the military complex that, that you know, are... are are sort of working against wokeness, you would think. And, and instead, they're attacking all the really PC companies for really stealing all of our privacy data and right. selling it. So it's kind, of a, it's kind of a reverse wokeness. I like it. And it's, I think it's it, There is a reverse wokeness kind of, Peter of, of sorts. Yeah. I, 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 should note, I, I should note Alex is a, uh, I think he would say he's a self-defined libertarian, yeah. very much in, in I think, I like Davos. Peter Thiel in that regard. Yeah. Uh, however, he is, um, in fairness, given that we're in the midst of a convention in the middle of the election, uh, right. he has been publicly against uh, this administration and I President remember. Trump, despite the government contracts that the, com that the company still, has. Right. Still, from, yes. and, from a political yeah. perspective, it's, it's much smarter for the company to say, you know what, China, we're going to pass on your business right now, especially considering how dependent they are on federal contracts. So if they're working for the military, they're working for the CIA, you can't also host servers and get data from China. I mean, you're right. sort of forced to pick sides in this particular instance. And some people will slam yep. it because they're saying, you know, you're going to forgo future profits. But for right now, this is probably what they do in order to, to preserve it, their pipeline for the next few years. And, and Andrew, it's not like they're do what I say. I mean, in terms of voting interest in the way you structure the company, they, they aren't really setting the standards for egalitarian uh, corporate governance. I mean, they know exactly who's going to be controlling the company, right? I mean, they got a, a structure yep. where the owners are in total control. So that's kind of not that woke. So there, it's, it's kind of an enigma, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but I would say he's an interesting guy. And, and we, as you know, we've talked to him many times. And he has, he's a very principled guy, has, has sort of very clear principles. But I think his biggest takeaway right now is his frustration with the Valley insofar as, you know, when Google decided not to pursue the Maven project and when you saw Amazon uh, move away from the government, I think his view is actually that the American people would actually have a much greater acceptance of perhaps some of the data collection and other things that the companies do, the, the, the things that may not be, that some people may not perceive as positive, if that there was a positive benefit on the other end of these companies 
helping the country in that way. Um, and so yep. he's he's always trying to trying to push the uh, push the conversation uh, in, in in various directions. Well, it's a cool name. We'll see. Uh, well, we'll uh, see. I, what would be very curious to me though is is sort of how this company gets valued in the public markets. It does still lose money. It's an, it's an enterprise company, but it's not, and it's a SaaS company. Um, there, there's very high capital costs. If you, if you look through some of these filings early on in terms of when they first get a client, they've got to do oftentimes a lot of white glove work to, to get it to, to work with the client. So a big government client or a big yep. um, a corporate client, there's a lot. But, but once they do, the idea is, are they locked in? Meaning, is that client, can that client really go anywhere right. because all of that work's been done? So we're going to see how, how, uh, how investors value that. I don't want to use this precious time attacking the other side. Because as we saw last week, that kind of talk only serves to divide the country further. I'm here because we need my husband to be our president and commander in chief for four more years. He's what is best for our country. First Lady Melania Trump making the case in a live speech from the White House Rose Garden during the second night of the revamped 2020 Republican National Convention. Mrs. Trump was among the first speakers over the two evenings to directly address the uncertainty surrounding the coronavirus pandemic, the administration's handling of which will surely be on voters' minds November 3rd. But the campaign for re-election has highlighted the strong American economy leading in to 2020. Here's National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow in his RNC remarks. Our economic choice is very clear. Do you want economic health, prosperity, opportunity, and optimism? Or do you want to turn back to the dark days of stagnation, recession, and pessimism? I believe there can't be better economic policies than we've had in recent years. So I say stay with them. The battleground states serious concerns about COVID-19 on the decline as President Trump's approval rating is moving higher. Eamon Javers is standing by right now with the latest results from CBC's Change Research States of Play survey. Eamon, great to see you this morning. Yeah, Andrew, that's right. We are seeing that bump here for President Trump, and it has to do with the fact uh, that people feel a little bit better about the economy, a little bit better about the virus, all of that improvement translating into good news for the president. The COVID response improvement is really what's driving that spike uh, in his overall job approval. So the president there, not back to where he was, but uh, certainly rebounding a little bit. Now look at the serious concerns about COVID. They are lessening. 66% of the respondents here in these battleground states told us they had serious concerns. That compares to 87% back in April. That's good news for the president as that panic feeling uh, starts to lessen and people learn to figure out how to live with this. But overall, still, in terms of who would have a better job of handling the coronavirus, the edge does go to Joe Biden and the Democrats, 51% to 49% for Donald Trump and the Republicans. And in this poll, Andrew, we also see uh, that Joe Biden has an edge in every one of those swing states that we're looking at. We're looking at six different swing states across the country. We're looking at likely voters here. These are the people we think will actually show up or participate in the voting. Biden has an edge there, but it's a narrow one, and the uh, president is certainly getting a boost over the past week or so. Back over to you. All right, Eamon. Uh, yep, thank you. Were you up? I mean, you, you got to be, right? Eamon, you're, you had to watch. You're there. Yeah, you, you, I'm operating yeah. on not very much sleep, yeah. You are? You can do it. 
It's it's only it's only a week. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 all right, it's only thanks. one week. Well, we did last it, week, and we're doing this week. Right. It, uh, it could be worse. You could be watching, you know, the NBA or something like like I, I'm I'm a little tired too uh, from that. Anyway, <laughs> could be worse. We could have three political parties. I could yeah, go that's right. Weeks. That's right. We could. Next on Squawk Pod, billionaire investor and real estate magnate Sam Zell on this polarizing election season. I think that the real $64 question in this whole election is, who is Joe Biden? Is Joe Biden the Joe Biden of 20 years ago? Or is the Joe Biden just a placeholder for the Democratic Party? We're back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Our next conversation is with billionaire real estate titan Sam Zell. He's the chairman of Equity Group Investments. If you've ever lived in an equity residential building in Chicago or New York, that's the same company. He's a self-proclaimed professional opportunist and grave dancer, meaning he's always spotting and cashing in on other people's mistakes. And he's been doing that with that moniker since the 1970s. Zell is also famous for colorful language. He's not shy. He wrote a book called Am I Being Too Subtle? All about his communication and investing philosophies. And to answer that question, no, Sam, not too subtle at all. This knack for not mincing words is part of why we look forward to his interviews on Squawk Box, especially when the country, the world, and our economy feel so polarized. Right now, the state of Sam Zell's real estate realm feels precarious as big offices move to remote work indefinitely and urban renters move to the suburbs. While some, like Jerry Seinfeld for the New York Times, believe that iconic cities like New York will never die, others aren't so sure. There are 13,000 empty apartments in Manhattan right now, a record high. Here's Joe Kernan kicking off Squawk's conversation with Sam Zell. I want to start by asking you, uh, right now it seems like you'd be looking around and seeing so many opportunities, given that so many things were, were being left, uh, you know, were, were so undervalued given what happened with the economy during the pandemic. But you, you don't see it that way. You're, you're not buying anything right now, are you? Well, we're, we, are, we are for sure active, although uh, it's really too early uh, for what I would call the normal clearing process. And that clearing process usually leads to uh, opportunities. And uh, I think everybody is still a little bit uh, shaken and, uh, and, and I think people haven't made decisions yet or haven't been confronted with the reality of the situation. So I think that uh, there will be significant opportunities uh, probably in the fourth quarter or the first quarter of next year. But the overall, you know, the, the pandemic has basically uh, slowed down decision-making and uh, deferred decision-making and therefore uh, the general activity level from a transaction point of view, is much less 
uh, at this point. The big cities, Sam, I, I, I think maybe you're, you might be more pessimistic than, than really a lot of people. Um, and and I, I, I do want to, now that I read this, uh, let's run this Barry Sternlich side, because he points out some of the, the issues that people see. Here, here it is, and you can respond. There's hundreds of thousands of people looking for uh, suburban homes. And I would say it's not as driven by the COVID situation as it is safety and law and order. And that is now pervasive across the big cities of the United States, sadly. You've characterized the, the future of, of big city, I guess, both office and residential as, as long lasting scars in that sector of real estate. Do you feel that way? Could you go into that a little bit, Sam? Yes. Um, I mean, I'm, I think, uh, you know, I think Barry's comments are exactly right. And that is that everybody is being driven and impacted by the issues of safety. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, we're in kind of an early stage of uh, kind of, let's call it a change. Uh, I mean, you can see it here in Chicago. Uh, I think Chicago was uh, surprised by the violence and the looting uh, and the organized nature uh, of the attacks. Uh, the steps that they have taken since that time have been very significant in terms of uh, what I, for lack of a better word, uh, gaining or regaining control of the city. I think that's happening pretty much all over the country. Uh, I think that, yes, uh, people are, quote, running to the suburbs, uh, uh, particularly to find, you know, rental kind of housing. Uh, but I think that's a short-term response. And uh, I think that the, the basic reasons for cities, uh, the fact that we're social animals, the fact that, that urbanization, you know, creates both challenges and opportunities uh, isn't about to change. And I don't think we're going to see uh, uh, anywhere, you know, anything like uh, yep. uh, a repeat back to uh, the bad old days where cities were, were too dangerous. Now, Sam. we obviously need uh, a, a lot of enforcement and uh, and we need a lot of uh, adjustment to uh, these no bail no you know no no bad things happening there have to be consequences and uh, hopefully we'll see that happen in the next few months well we'll see uh, I, I was thinking about how long you've been coming on the show and we, you've spanned a lot of uh, different administrations and I don't know it must be 20 years probably that you've been coming on the yeah, show I anyway think so it's been a long yeah, time yeah anyway you, you I always... remember I remember when you know Joe Kern was a young guy yeah very funny uh, you've looked the same the entire time somehow which is uh, that, 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 that's good and bad Sam no I'm kidding uh, hey, 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 check this out so you always say that you have been a Democrat for life. You've always been a Democrat. But there have been times in the past, I'd say, mostly during the Obama-Biden administration, where I think that you criticize some of the uh, regulations, the regulatory environment, maybe some of the tax policy. And I'm just wondering where you are right now, given that we're in political season. There's a, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal it says that uh, the, the left and Mr. Biden uh, want to claim that Trump inherited a long expansion, but they point out it was the weakest recovery post-war uh, and that the second half of 2015 was losing steam and came close to a recession in 2016. And then 
the policies that Trump brought in, the deregulation, the tax cuts, the corporate tax cuts, really did work initially until COVID came along. Do you agree with that, 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 uh, that things were, were going along pretty well? And, and what do you think we need, you know, what should we do? Which, which policies in the future from where we are right now make more sense to bring the economy back? Tax hikes or, or more yeah. of what we saw? Well, first of all, I do agree. Uh, I, I never really uh, identified myself uh, as a Democrat uh, in the most recent periods. In the beginning, uh, when I was very young and, and in school and in law school, etc., I was for sure a Democrat. Uh, as I've gotten older, uh, I've you know kind of been much more of an independent and and probably a Republican. Uh, I was critical of the Obama. Biden era because I don't believe that redistribution is the solution for anything. The only thing that really matters is growth and that what the United States needs to do is encourage growth. Uh, and that's how we also solve the inequality problem. Uh, I think that inequality grew dramatically during the Obama years, primarily because the focus was on redistribution rather than on creating growth opportunities. Uh, I think that uh, many of the things that the Trump administration did were very positive for that. Um, and uh, hopefully uh, they will continue and, and help get us out of this mess from the pandemic. Hey, Sam, you talked about not seeing opportunities until maybe later this year. And I'm wondering if you think there are opportunities on the other side of the trade. There's been a lot of talk recently of billionaire investors going short the CMBS 6 series, which is heavily weighted uh, towards mall uh, debt. Is there more downside in that sort of trade? Are you in or have you considered that sort of trade? Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky. Uh, I used to be one of the largest owners of retail in the United States. A uh, long time ago, in the early 90s, I decided that that wasn't where I ought to be focused and sold uh, our entire retail portfolio. Uh, I obviously wasn't smart enough to know uh, that online uh, retail was coming on and what it was going to do to the retail market. But there's little question in my mind that retail is a falling knife. And uh, we are for sure not at the bottom in terms of the impact online uh, and the just change in the orientation toward retail. So there is more pain. And, and have you considered that sort of a trade where you're betting against that debt? You're betting uh, that, that I don't, you know, I, retail you know, debt will think, go into de default? Yeah, I don't really think in terms of trades. Uh, I think in terms of, you know, would I buy a retail portfolio today? Maybe not today, but maybe tomorrow. Uh, I think that uh, you know we're, we're you know we started out this whole scenario with more retail space per person than any country in the world by a multiple. Uh, so to some extent, the the change in retail is really just a recognition of the oversupply. Uh, I think going forward. Uh, you know, certainly the pandemic has accelerated uh, the amount of online retail, and I don't think that's ever going to change. And it's going to require, you know, future retail uh, to be retail real estate to be very different uh, than it has been up until now.
Sam, yesterday we, we, we played a side of Barry Sternlich. He had a lot of uh, worries about law and order, big cities and everything. But, but when pressed, he thought that the, I guess, the divisiveness of the last four years, if he had to be pushed on who he, he would vote for this time around, he finally came out with a Biden. We've asked you in the, I can, like I said, we go back many, many years, and, and you're always hesitant. Uh, you don't endorse on TV, and I'm not sure you're ready to do it this time. But That's um, great. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, uh, you, you do have some pretty stark choices in terms of, of regulatory policy, probably, in terms of, I don't know, Green New Deals, in terms of tax hikes, things like that. I, I mean, are, are, can you give me uh, some body language as to which way, do, do, does the divisiveness or the downside to what people see in Donald Trump make it, make it unable for you to support him for four more years? I think that... Uh as, as, a, as an investor and as an American citizen, um, um, I don't think anything is, quote, as clear as the way you perceive the question. Um, I think that the real 64-hour question in this whole election is, uh, who is Joe Biden? And is Joe Biden the Joe Biden uh, of 20 years ago? Uh, or is the Joe Biden... Uh, just a placeholder for the Democratic Party being taken over uh, by the radical left. Uh, I think that the ideas of, uh, of, of, of what I'll call, for lack of a better word, the radical left uh, uh, are relatively catastrophic for the future of our country. And uh, I'm not supportive of them. Uh, if Joe Biden, quote, is able to uh, govern from the center, uh, that's a very different story. And I think that over the next three months, we're going to find out uh, uh, exactly where he stands and whether he has the uh, commitment uh, to being a centrist uh, or whether he's just well, going to be Sam, run what over. Was Ob what was Obama Biden? Was that, that, that administration? Was that centrist? Would you like that? Uh, would you like that Biden for the next four years? Well, let's put it like this. If you told me that the Obama-Biden uh, plan or, or methodologies was going to be repeated for the next four years, I would be a lot less worried than I am right now. Okay. All right. Um, so you, you're worried about it going... So what I'm reading is you didn't really you didn't like the redistribution policies of, of the eight years of Obama Biden, but it's preferable to the divisiveness or, or some of the downside to the to the Trump years. Obviously, don't think that the divisiveness is beneficial. And uh, I think that anything that is, you know, focused on dividing our country is not a positive thing. At the same time, uh, I think some of the radical solutions and free everything uh, philosophies uh, are just not realistic and uh, ultimately uh, will lead to the, to the destruction of our economic system. Okay. Andrew, do you want in? We're all good. And Sam, it's great to see you. And uh, it's fascinating to hear your views, both the, the political views, but also your views about cities. And I'm, uh, I'm trying to be optimistic and hopeful. I hope that um, you know, six months from now, a year from now, that uh, some of the great cities like Chicago, your city and New York uh, return to some better sense of, of normalcy. So uh, I, I appreciate your well, optimism I, I, this morning. And I think I would add by saying that it's going to require leadership. Um, 
you know, it's going to require the leaders of all the companies to come back to their offices and lead the people and create the opportunity. And hiding out in the Hamptons or hiding out in Vermont or wherever uh, doesn't make any sense and is, is counterproductive. All right, Sam. Great to have you on uh, today. We will uh, continue our, our long, long relationship, hopefully. Uh, in, My in, pleasure. In, I, miss, I miss being there in person and connecting as we usually did. Coming up, will college ever be the same? Georgetown's president on containing COVID, virtual learning, and getting in. We aren't expecting much change in terms of the interest in students applying to the university, but we're, we're in, in a very new moment, and I think we're all learning, and we're going to see just what unfolds. Squawk Pod will be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step. But having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Joe Kernan along with Andrew uh, Ross Sorkin and Melissa Lee. Becky uh, is off today. Georgetown University's fall semester starts today, virtually, that is. They were one of the many colleges who reversed their original plans in late July after cases rose across the country. Joining us now, John DeJoya, president of Georgetown University. Jack, great to see you. Thank you for joining us. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. How difficult was this decision, and, and how do you think about sort of the longer-term uh, impact on the Georgetown community, particularly when you don't have first-year students uh, having the benefit of, right. of that sort of culture on campus? It's one of the great questions that we're, that we're engaged in right now. Our, our decision took place over the course of roughly two months. Um, we began our preparations back in April for this fall, but in early June, we made a decision that we, we would be able to reopen. We would need to do so monitoring carefully our pu the public health conditions here in this region. And we made a decision at that point that we were going to try to bring back a good part of our community, our graduate students, our law students, our medical students, our research community. And we we're going to hold off the decision on undergraduates, just trying to determine what would be the, the right framework for bringing back undergraduates. We, we have a very dense, very, very rich uh, residential experience. Nearly 90% of our undergraduates live right here on the Georgetown campus. At the end of, of um, June, early July, we informed our undergraduates 
that we were going to bring back the first-year students. We were going to bring to campus our first-year students, and we'd hold off. We'd see how that, how that would go before we would make a decision to bring back any more. But as you were just describing, the accelerating pace of the spread of the virus through July made those plans impossible. At the end of July, we were looking at, at uncontrolled spread in nearly 30 states and restrictions on interstate travel. And as we looked at that, mm -hmm. the, the city of Washington made a decision that anyone coming from any of 27 states would be required to be quarantined for 14 days. And we estimated nearly half of the students we were bringing to campus would have to be in quarantine for those first two weeks. And we right. looked at just the conditions that we were wrestling with and how, the, how it was unfolding. And we made a decision that we would go fully virtual at the start of this year. I mean, logistically, for a lot of urban-centric universities, it's difficult to find the space to, to actually quarantine students before they get onto campus officially, let alone if there is any sort of an outbreak. Uh, you know, it's interesting because the semester is starting as sort of uh, high school seniors are considering where to apply to uh, for college yes. for next year. And I'm wondering what you expect in terms of the admissions process. A lot of the students that have decided to matriculate at universities this year for their first year, um, they had made the decision to to go before schools reversed on not bringing them back to campus. Do you expect any sort of a drop off in applications, particularly when you're talking about spending fifty six thousand dollars a year on tuition? It's hard to say $56,000 a year for online learning. Yes, and, and as, as, you, as you may know, we did make a decision when we went fully virtual for our undergraduates to reduce our tuition. We, we provide such a, a, an, a, an engaged residential experience, and we've built such an infrastructure to support that. We know that infrastructure is not going to be used this fall, so we made some adjustments to the cost of education for, for this fall. You know, our sense, we haven't seen any real change. We, we've had a few more, I'd say, you know, a little, an, a larger number of students requested a leave of absence after we made a decision to go fully virtual, but the numbers weren't, weren't significant. And we aren't expecting much change in terms of the interest in students uh, applying to the university. Um, but we're, we're in, in a very new moment. And I think we're all learning and we're gonna see just what unfolds as, as we move into this new academic year. No sports at Georgetown. Um, what are you expecting with other universities? You, you are on the board, I believe, the NCAA. Yes, yes. Well, this fall, um, our conferences, we participate in two conferences. Uh, the Big East, for almost all of our sports, we play football in the Patriot League. And in mid-August, uh, both conferences announced that we would be postponing fall sports and we would be moving them to the spring in the hope that we'll be able to have our fall sports this, this spring. And an unusual, but nevertheless, we're hopeful to be able to move that forward um, for the spring. So we don't, we don't have uh, intercollegiate athletic competition taking place this fall. And I think you would see that across much of higher education. The NCAA uh, recommendation, uh, re recommendations regarding health care have made it very clear what kinds of conditions would ideally be in place for us to be able to engage in intercollegiate athletics. And then the guidance from the board in, in August was the NCAA, right. whose fundamental responsibility in the fall is to host the championships. If less than half of those who would be eligible to participate in NCAA right. championships in the fall were not participating in their conference activities, then the NCAA would not have 
fall championships. And in fact, more than, more than half of our conferences across the nation are not competing this fall. So there will not be NCAA football, um, NCAA championship in, in all sports uh, this fall. Sure. Jack, great to see you. Thanks for your time. Jack Thank DeJoya, Georgetown great, University. Great to be with you. Thank you. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Thanks to Melissa Lee for sitting in today. Melissa, parting is such sweet sorrow. Um, are you here tomorrow? I'll see you tomorrow. Good. Excellent. Andrew, you too. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Tweet us questions or comments at Squawk CNBC, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.